0: This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Get Sharp, a podcast focused on actionable, medium-term macro insights from industry leaders. My name is Matthew Schner, and I'm your host, along with our co-host, Dustin Reed, who is a Chief Fixed Income Strategy with McKenzie Investments. Dustin, welcome back. Great to have you here.
1: Great to be here. Thanks very much for helping me set this one up.
0: Of course. Very excited about today's conversation. Uh, Who are we talking to, and what are we talking about?
1: So today, we have a really, really interesting topic with a fantastic guest, Joseph Briggs, who's a Senior Global Economist uh, within the Global Investment Research Team at Goldman Sachs, and he co-leads that team. Prior to doing that role, he was on the US econ team for three years. And then before joining Goldman in 19, he was a senior economist at the Fed uh, where he was briefing governors on economic and financial developments and led the construction of the Fed's uh, distributional financial accounts he's been published in many uh, significant academic journals and he's also been with the uh, vanguard research institute and has taught at john hopkins uh, joseph has an m.a and a phd in economics from new york uh, university and a bs in mathematics from north carolina state so it's it's amazing to have him on, and uh, we're, we're thrilled to be here to talk about what we think is going to be a really interesting topic around AI uh, and its impact on macro markets. So that's where we're going to take the conversation today, Matt, and maybe over to you to start it off.
0: Yeah, great. Joseph, uh, welcome. Uh, really excited to have you on. Very impressive background. I thought maybe we'd start with just sort of defining what we're talking about today. So what is generative AI, and how would you describe it? Hey, Matt. Hey, Dustin. It's great to be joining both of you today.
2: So generative AI refers to a technology that uses artificial intelligence to generate content or output that is basically indistinguishable indistinguishable from the output that humans can produce. Now, artificial intelligence has been around for a while. Uh, it's a broad term that encompasses a number of different statistical and machine learning methods. Um, there's three key differences, in my mind, uh, between the generative AI models that we're using today and the AI models that existed say, two, three years ago. The first is that they are generalized rather than specialized. And so this means that there's a wider set of use cases and complementary innovations. You know, by the the virtue of their name, they're also generative rather than descriptive. And so, again, they can produce uh, indistinguishable uh, output from, from humans. And, you know, third is the third key innovation is that the interface has evolved to a point where anyone can use it. And As a macroeconomist, I think that this is extremely exciting and potentially the key breakthrough, mostly because if you had a great technology that no one was able to use, uh, you wouldn't be able to see the macroeconomic impacts we think are possible to realize.
1: That's absolutely true. I think you guys have done some incredible work. I've read a number of the papers that you and the team have put out, and it's really, really quite fascinating uh, what uh, what you think and the team thinks around AI and the impact on macro and the economy, not only for the U.S. but some global trends. Maybe we could start off on that side. And I think, in particular, you know, when you and I have talked about this kind of you know, in in passing before, particularly around AI's impact on the labor market and the unemployment rate. You know, you think that there could be some some implications. Could you talk about maybe what I would say maybe long term to very long term impacts on uh, on how AI might impact uh, the labor market and the unemployment rate in the U.S. and maybe. And maybe a little bit more broadly globally. Yeah, absolutely. The, the simple takeaway uh, from all of our research is
2: that there's a lot of workers that spend a lot of time doing a lot of things that generative AI models are pretty good at. Hmm. And if you're able to take some of these tasks that we all engage in on a daily basis and outsource them to machines, um, then, you know, that's going to free up a lot of capacity. The way that we've approached, you know, the question trying to size the impact that we could see on the labor market is to basically use a set uh or data set that contains task level data uh, for over 900 occupations in the us uh, about 2000 in europe Um, and basically it contains measures of you know what sort of tasks different types of workers do Um, we then went through and classified these different tasks as things that ai could potentially automate and things that ai was less likely to automate Uh, for example gathering and summarizing information is something that that we think that AI can do Uh, driving a car is something that we don't think that AI is able to do, or generative AI rather is able to do today. Um, Potentially at some point we could get there, but that seems a little bit farther off in the future from from our perspective. Um, And so, you know, we, we, you know, looked at each occupation, uh, you know, created an estimate of how much uh, of the time, uh, you know, each worker in this occupation spends on potentially automatable tasks. And then, you know, use that to gauge how much potential time savings and how much, uh, you know, task replacement we could see if generative AI AI is widely adopted. Now, the numbers uh, that we came up with were fairly big. Uh, You know, if we looked at the U.S., uh, we found that two-thirds of occupations had some exposure to generative AI automation. Uh, In terms of, you know, the total amount of tasks in the economy that we thought could potentially be automated, uh, we came up with an estimate of 25 percent um, and so you know put differently you know 25 percent of the tasks that people do in work today uh, could potentially be outsourced to machines in the long run um, you know these numbers uh, are fairly uncertain you know if you make different assumptions about how capable generative AI models uh, you know uh, will ultimately become mm-hmm. then you can easily get much larger much smaller effects um, you know 25 percent we thought was a reasonable benchmark and it's actually at the lower end of what other people that have taken a similar approach to trying to assess labor market impact have come up with. Um, I should be clear that, you know, when I say 25% uh, automation exposure for, for the American worker, that doesn't mean that 25% of jobs are going to go away. If we look at the distribution within occupations, say, you know, how many of it how, you know, what's your task could be, uh, you know, replaced for, you know, a, a legal worker or what sort of ta- or what sort of task could be replaced for a research analyst like myself. Hmm. Um, we generally didn't find a lot of occupations that, you know, had an exposure score of 50, 60, 70, 80 uh, percent. There were a lot of occupations that had exposure scores of 10, 20, 30 to 40 percent. And so we think that, you know, the relatively low exposure score within a specific occupation means that we probably won't see uh you know these occupations completely going away instead you know it would just lead to a lot of time savings we extrapolated these results to other economies uh, looking globally um, if we look at other dms uh, you know europe um, you know, japan canada um, australia we found Pretty similar estimates uh, to to the U.S. The, the main reason being that if you look at the you know composition of work within developed market economies, they are you know similarly skewed towards service and knowledge workers, and so the exposure for these type of workers is going to be pretty similar. Um, if we look at EMs, exposure is naturally uh, naturally lower. Um, right. This just reflects the fact that there's more uh, you know manual labor that goes into production in, in EM economies. Um, you know, Globally, we came up with an estimate slightly lower uh, than the 25% that we estimated for the DM economy. Something like you know, 10 to 15% of all work tasks could potentially be automated.
1: Joseph, just thinking about the labor market and how it's going to, AI is going to impact labor and the unemployment rate long term, can you maybe be a little bit more specific in terms of which industries you, can, you would expect uh, a little bit more impact on versus maybe some of the others that won't be as impacted?
2: Our twenty-five percent, um, you know, economy-wide uh, automation estimate uh, or exposure to automation estimate does mask a significant amount of heterogeneity and dispersion across industries. On one end, if we look at you know those industries that have a significant physical component, so things like construction, maintenance, manufacturing, um, you know, transportation and, and material moving. Uh, you know, these all score relatively lowly, uh, you know, with only about 10% or, or, less of, you know, the work tasks associated with production being potentially automatable by generative AI. This is largely driven by our assumption that, uh, you know, any task that has a significant physical component is not going to be substituted by, by generative AI until we see further advancement in robot advancements and robotics that are beyond the, the technological breakthrough that's happened over the last couple of years. Um. On the other end, we see, uh, you know, some occupations like office and administrative support, um, legal uh, services, architecture and engineering, um, sciences and business and financial operations scoring relatively highly, um, you know, 35 percent plus in terms of uh, the, the total amount of tasks that can potentially be automated. I think that, uh, you know, legal and office and administrative support were actually a bit closer to 50 percent. Um, and. You know, so so there is you know more potential for automation in industries that employ a larger share of you know knowledge, uh, you know white collar workers, where uh, occupations are more focused on content generation because that's really what generative AI models are pretty good at. Um, you know, again, however, I would say that uh, you do need to you know look at these scores across industries with some nuance. Um, you know the the legal, you know, the legal industry, for example, I think that um, you know lawyers are probably a little bit less exposed uh, to AI-driven automation um, than you know uh, some of the, the support uh, workers that help them in document and case discovery. Um, you know, similarly, if we look at uh, you know within within engineering and sciences, um, you know, even though they score pretty highly. Uh, and I guess I should note that the reason they score pretty highly is that generative AI models are very good at, you know, coding, um, which you know many of these, uh, you know, workers spend a decent amount of time doing. Um, I think that you know it'll mostly again show up as an increase in efficiency uh, rather than you know necessarily a big increase in displacement. Even within these highly scoring industries, for the most part, only a small share of occupations are exposed at the, a 50% threshold or above, which we think was probably needs to be crossed before we see uh, displacement come onto the table.
0: That's great. Just maybe a follow up on, on that, uh, Joseph. So you, you referenced the 25% of tasks that could be automated, but that wouldn't translate directly to employment for any individual because it's, they still have to do the other 75% of tasks, essentially. What does that mean on an aggregate basis for the unemployment rate? So maybe you have lots of lawyers that can outsource 25%. Do you need, you know, on aggregate, Twenty-five percent less lawyers.
2: So the way that we tried to size up the the potential hit to the unemployment rate, um, you know, was to assume that tasks or that occupations that had a greater than fifty percent automation exposure score, uh, you know, could potentially be uh, you know, displaced, um, you know, following the widespread adoption of generative AI. Um, and so, you know, if you were to take stop there, this would mean that you could see, you know, a five to seven percent increase in the unemployment rate. We we don't think that that's the case. Um, Hmm. You know, the the reason being is that if you look over a long history, uh, you know, one of the the big common themes following technological innovation and technological change is that technology is a net creator of of jobs. Um, You know, there's two ways that generative AI could create new opportunities. The first is that AI adjacent occupations that didn't exist uh, previously are likely to emerge. Uh, One of the interesting stats that we flagged in our, our work is that if you go back to 1940. Um, and compare the labor force today to the labor force then, only about 40% of workers today are employed in occupations that even existed in 1940. Mm-hmm. And so to put differently, uh, that means about 85% of job growth over the last 80 uh, years has been driven by technology creating new positions. Uh, in the long run, I think the generative AI will be no different, and you know that, that it will likely be a net uh, positive for, for employment. The other the other way that generative AI uh, and widespread adoption of generative AI could increase employment, um, you know, is by uh, you know increasing aggregate income and aggregate demand, and you know that should increase demand for workers and uh, service sector jobs where labor has comparative advantage. And so, I don't actually see the unemployment rate uh, rising in the long run due to the adoption of generative AI. Um, I think that there could be a transition period where. Uh, You know, some workers are displaced initially, and it just takes a little bit more time for the new occupations and new opportunities uh, to be created. Uh, We saw this happen a little bit in the 1990s following the uh, widespread adoption of the personal computer. Um, But I, I expect that any sort of disruption will probably be pretty short lived. And, you know, we're not going to see a significant increase in unemployment in the long run.
0: Great context. Um, maybe shifting to productivity. Uh, I think of these tools, obviously, as a productivity enhancer. In uh, your latest report, uh, you've uh, indicated that the GDP could increase by sort of 10 to 15% over, uh, over the long run. Big number. Maybe just give uh, more context on uh, the productivity growth and how you came to that number.
2: Yeah. Our labor house market estimates are key to our assumption or our finding that um, you know, we could see about a 15% increase in cumulative productivity, labor productivity, uh, following full adoption of generative AI. Um, you know, this would, if, if generative AI were adopted over a 10-year period, this would correspond to about a 1.5 percentage point per year boost to productivity growth. This would be roughly double the, the pace of productivity growth that we've seen um, in DMs, uh, you know, over the last uh, 20, 20, 30 years. You know the way that we come up with uh, this this estimate is by you know looking at uh, you know the share of tasks that could be potentially automated, uh, making some assumptions around uh, you know what workers do with the free time that all of a sudden they have on their hands after they're able to outsource these these tedious repetitive tasks to generative AI, um, and also making some assumptions about uh, you know what type of occupations how productive uh, you know. Uh, are workers that that are displaced, um, you know, once they find new occupations and new work, um, you know, in the long run, uh, the the key driver um, of our productivity growth estimates is basically that you are going to see workers take advantage of the free time, uh, at least a decent share of it, uh, to engage in more productive activities. And so, as a research analyst, the way that I would think about this, if I don't have to spend as much time summarizing prior reports and gathering data Then I have more capacity to write new research and uh, talk to clients, the type of activities that really add value to my job. And so, you know, once we we take this into account for all different occupations, um, you know, we come up with a that one and a half percentage point year boost productivity growth, uh, again, over a 10 year period. When we look at uh, EM economies, the boost to productivity are naturally smaller. Again, just reflecting that the exposure uh, to, to the workforce is generally smaller for, for EMs. Um, I should also flag that, you know, it's pretty easy to get fairly different estimates of productivity growth boost if you make different assumptions about generative AI. Uh, and, you know, the, the, it's both its capability and adoption time. For instance, if it instead took 20 years rather than 10 years for uh, generative AI to uh, you know, be, be fully adopted then the productivity growth boost would only be half as large in any growth in any year even if the cumulative effect was the same. Um, similarly, if we allow for generative AI to, to be more capable then you can get you know productivity growth boost somewhere in the two to three percent range. Uh, if you allow it to be less capable then you know the, the productivity growth, growth boost could be as small as uh, half a point or less. Uh, so there's a wide range of outcomes, but the thing that I would really emphasize is that, in most reasonable cases that we considered, uh, the the productivity growth boosts were uh, economically meaningful and likely to have a significant impact on the economic outlook and markets.
1: Maybe I can drill down a little bit on the adoption side of that. I know your pieces have been really interesting around the idea of, you know, obviously it's been a very, very hot topic in 2023 AI broadly. And, you know, is this going to take off very, very quickly? We're going to see material adoption rates the next one, two, three years. But I think your pieces are saying more, this is kind of a five to 10 year neighborhood. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the adoption process and how you think this will scale?
2: Absolutely. So I will preface, uh, you know, my response here by noting that we have been relatively cautious, um, you know, in our adoption assumptions. Uh, and in my conversations over the last, uh, you know, I guess six to nine months since we first started working uh, on generative AI, most clients and you know investors, corporates have taken a view that adoption could be a little bit more front loaded than than we expect. Hmm. Key to our view, however, is that if we look at past Uh, technological breakthroughs, and so consider consider things like the personal computer, uh, the emergence of the electric motor, Uh, we've generally seen that it takes about 10 to 20 years from the point where the key technological breakthrough occurs until you start seeing, you know, the productivity gains that we think are possible show up in aggregate macroeconomic statistics. Um, You know, this usually aligns with roughly a point when about 50% of firms have adopted the technology, uh, you know, I don't think that we're, we're close to 50% of firms today uh, using generative AI. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we could get there fairly quickly, but uh, until we cross that, that threshold or, or at least have a meaningful uh, you know, amount of companies using generative AI in the relative workflow, we're not going to see the impact on aggregate macro, macroeconomic statistics. Um, you know, our baseline assumption is that we don't really see, uh, you know, say a 10% adoption threshold being crossed. Uh, in the in the US and other developed markets until 2027, 2028. Okay. I think that companies are going to be fairly cautious about trying to incorporate generative AI into their workflow due to concerns about uh, data privacy, um, potential compliance and, and regulatory risk. Mm. And so all of these frictions, I think we're just going to slow down the pace at which we see companies really start utilizing generative AI to its full capability. Um, once companies have, you know, adopted generative AI, I think that it could take even a bit longer uh, for the the productivity gains to be fully realized. And so, you know, in our, um, you know, recent growth update where we took on generative AI uh, into our long-run growth forecast, um, we actually had an even more backloaded, uh, you know, boost to, to labor productivity and GDP. Um, you know, again, it just reflects the fact that I think that, you know, companies, uh, you know, will take more time to get this right rather than try to rush and and do everything uh, right away. The last point that I would make is that if we look at uh, what company leaders and CEOs are telling us in business surveys, um, you know, there's actually a surprisingly low share that expect that they're going to see a significant impact in their workforce in the next one to three years. Something like 25% of uh, CEOs uh, report that that they are going to expect, uh, you know, workforce reduction or any sort of, uh, you know, meaningful impact on their workflow, um, you know, within a three year horizon. However, if you take that out to, to three years and beyond, so say three to 10 years, um, you know, the vast majority, somewhere like 80% plus report that they do expect that it's going to have a meaningful impact. Interesting. And so, you know, our view that it's a second half of the decade, uh, through 2035, uh, you know, story is, is, you know, very much in alignment with. What we're hearing, uh, at least, what's being reported in surveys by corporate
0: leaders. So, given that, and this, maybe this comes from some of the survey data or other work that you've done, what do you expect the investment, sort of capex implications to be, and how would that vary by sector or industry?
2: When we look at
0: past technological breakthroughs, again,
2: uh, using the personal computer and the emergence of electricity as as benchmarks, um, you know, we have seen that historically periods of technological driven rapid productivity growth have been led by significant investment cycles um, with equipment and technology investment increasing up to 2% of GDP. We are starting from a very low base. Uh, You know, there wasn't the investment in generative AI, um, you know, that we expect is going to unfold over the next couple of years, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And so that it will probably take a, a while before the or at least a couple years before AI related investment starts to have a major impact on GDP. I'd also emphasize that, you know, the, the amount of investment that we're going to, to see is going to depend heavily on how big generative AI models uh, ultimately get. Hmm. So the, the, the main source of investment that's going to be necessary to facilitate widespread adoption of generative AI is going to be in the data, uh, you know, infrastructure and semiconductors that are needed to both, you know, process queries, but also train models. Um, There's two uh, exponential trends that are, that are, you know, underlying uh, both models and costs right now. The first is that uh, models are growing uh, at an exponential pace. And the second is that the cost of computing power is falling at an exponential pace. Hmm. And so, you know, if, you know, recently uh, the pace of model growth uh, has outpaced the, the rate at which the cost of computing power is falling. And so we have seen you know, the cost of training and using generative AI models uh, increase. Um, you know, if this continues then and models continue to grow uh, extremely large, then you can easily come up with outcomes where generative AI models are prohibitively expensive to use and prohibitively expensive to query. Ultimately, we think that the constraint that limits model size is going to be an economic one and not necessarily a technological one. <laughs> um, at some point, the efficiency gains from having a bigger model are just not going to you know, outweigh the, the costs of, of training and using it. Um, it's hard to know exactly when we get to that point. Um, but, you know, in a stylized scenario that, that we considered, uh, we came up with an estimate that AI related investment could peak at around two to two and a half percent of GDP sometime in the next year, 10 years. Um, before falling a bit as computing costs come down, uh, you know, say, say by
1: 2040. Well, that's, uh, that's a big number as a percent of GDP for sure. It obviously changes the, uh, potentially changes the makeup of the national accounts data maybe on a long-term basis, which is pretty interesting. From maybe a more near-term and more markets focused perspective. Um, the way things are progressing now over the next, say, one or two years, maybe three, but uh, kind of near term-ish, what do you think are the more immediate market implications uh, in terms of AI impact from a macro perspective on various asset classes that we trade? You know, equities, fixed income, FX, commodities, other, and maybe even sub-asset classes within within the broad, uh, larger asset choices.
2: Our cross-asset strategist, my colleague Dominic Wilson, and uh, Vicki Chang have done some nice work uh, looking at the implications of generative AI and the productivity gains that we've uh, estimated are possible on different asset classes. The effects are, are somewhat nuanced. Um, you know, some of them are pretty straightforward. The big winner is likely to be equities. We've already seen a pretty big increase, uh, you know, in, in equity valuations Uh, among the hyperscalers and companies that are facilitating the adoption of of generative AI. Um, We haven't seen as much of an equity uh, valuation response for the companies that are going to benefit from generative AI yet. And so, you know, all the companies that are likely to experience a boost to earnings, uh, you know, following the the widespread adoption. You know, that said, economic theory would tell us that equity valuation should increase an expectation of future earnings gains that the generative AI is going to make possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the impact on equities is pretty clear that it should be more front loaded and more positive than other asset classes. If we, you know, going down the list, if we look at, uh, you know, rates and FX, I'll start with FX from our point of view, generative AI, uh, and the GDP gains and productivity gains that we think uh, it's going to facilitate, um, is going to very much look like a DM growth shock. If mm-hmm. we look at the, you know, leaders in model development and uh, countries that are most likely to start using generative AI earlier, the U.S. is probably uh, the one that stands out. Um, and so, you know, if we do see a front-loaded boost to productivity and output uh, and investment in the U.S. relative to other countries, um, this should lead to an inflow of capital into the U.S., which should be dollar positive. Mm-hmm. And I think that it does... You know, against this backdrop, we uh, would naturally expect that, you know, the dollar would uh, you know remain relatively firm versus other currencies, provided that generative AI does uh, continue to appear likely to have a significant impact on the overall economic outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, the impact on interest rates is somewhat more nuanced. Uh, the reason being that... Uh, you have to take into account the productivity gains versus a potential deflationary impact that the generative AI could have. And so, you know, it's pretty clear that a boost to labor productivity should be positive for for real rates. Um, However, if you do see at least some worker displacement, at least, uh, you know, some, you know, I guess, freeing up of of economic capacity, uh, then this should put downward pressure on wage growth and inflation. It's very hard to have a lot of confidence in how big, you know, any sort of disinflationary impulse could potentially be, but it, uh, it should be, you know, considered and taken into account when thinking about the implications on, on nominal rates. Um, the last asset class that I would flag is that, you know, generative AI could actually be uh, net positive for commodities. Huh. The, the reason being that if we do see generative AI, lead to an increase in aggregate income, this is going to increase aggregate demand. And we don't think that commodities uh, and commodity production are going to benefit as much um, from efficiency gains that uh, generative AI is likely to unlock. And so the combination of a less meaningful supply impact, but a positive demand impact uh, should uh, lead to an appreciation in, in commodity prices over the long run. It's quite hard to you know size the magnitude of you know the impact that that you know generative AI will have on uh different different asset classes, but directionally uh you know the, the quick summary is positive for equities, positive for, for dollar, unclear for, for rates and positive for commodities.
1: Have you given some thought around um and that's that's all very, very I think, it's, I think it's extremely fascinating from a very long-term perspective in terms of how different asset classes could perform. From a regional perspective, um, have you given a lot of thought on uh, impact on China and with respect to either commodity production or how the macro economy could be impacted from, uh, from AI going forward?
2: There's two things to note about China. Um, the first is that if we analyze the impact of AI using the framework that we've mostly focused on, which is, again, uh, you know, labor force exposure and the time savings that are possible to increase output and, and, and raise productivity, China actually scores relatively lowly. Um, the reason being that it does have a more labor-intensive economy still. Um, mm-hmm. The construction sector is a much larger share of total GDP in, in China than in, in other areas, despite the fact that, you know, we think that share is going to be shrinking over time. Um, and so the impact on, you know, China from a, a labor productivity perspective is likely to be somewhat lower than than for DMs. The interesting, you know, uh, uh, difference with China, which is perhaps a little bit more similar to, to the U.S., is that there is a, uh, you know, an, an initiative or, you know, signs that investment in generative AI could be uh, fairly sizable. Um, and so you could see the same sort of investment cycle that we've laid out for the, the U.S. playing out in China. Um, we haven't done much to try to, to size that, but it is worth bearing in mind and you know, potentially creates a little bit of upside risk for our estimates for the, the GDP boost from, from China.
0: That's great really interesting discussion. I just have a short one for you, uh, Joseph. Um, in your work on generative AI, what's the most interesting use, like specific example that you've seen that has excited you, or maybe it's frivolous, I don't know, wherever what, you want to take the answer.
2: One thing that really stood out to me as cool is uh, our equity analysts uh, have written on the potential use of generative AI to uh, facilitate the development uh, of new drugs, Hmm. Um, you know, so generative AI could actually be, uh, you know, a nice tailwind for pharmaceutical development. Um, and you know, that'd be quite exciting if it could lead to significant improvements in health outcomes for, for everyone. Um, the medical sector also, uh, well, I mean, it's tricky because there's a lot of, uh, regulatory barriers here that could, um, of course. you know, restrict adoption, uh, but, You know, there has been a number of academic research studies that looked at, you know, what is the improvement in patient care and and outcomes if doctors start using generative AI to improve their diagnostic capabilities. And the results there seem fairly, fairly positive so far. And and so I think that that's a area that, uh, you know, seems quite cool. Selfishly, uh, I'm looking forward to the day when, you know, generative AI can populate my emails for me.
1: Sure. uh, (laughs) We all are.
2: (laughs) Save a lot of time and, you know, uh,
1: allow me to to get out of the office earlier. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely one uh, bonus to the whole concept. Well, Joseph, I want to thank you very much for a, a really, really interesting discussion and your time and all the work that you and your team at Goldman have, uh, have put into this topic of AI impact on macro. I think, it's, I think it's fascinating. I think everyone has an interest in this, whether it's kind of their own self or how the macro economy works is going to be affected or from a market's perspective. I think there are a lot of really interesting takeaways here. I think uh, you know, it would be great to have, to have you back on maybe at some point later next year to kind of get an update and see how things are progressing with your expectations or the, and the team's expectations and kind of keep you know, reiterating the process. On behalf of Matt, I want to thank you very much for the time. It's really, really great discussion. appreciate it. Absolutely, Dustin. And thanks for having me on. It
2: was great to speak with you and Matt today, and I
1: look forward to, to joining you again.
0: Thanks, Joseph. Really appreciate it. Justin, I thought that was a great conversation with Joseph, I learned a lot. Um, One element that really stood out to me was this concept of the adoption cycle. And I like how he references these other large uh, transformational technologies and how they filter through society, be that the electricity, uh, electrical grid, PCs, Internet, those types of things. I'm curious on your thoughts on this. One of the elements that is true for things like electrification and PCs is there's a physical element to it. You have to have the PC shipped to you. You have to figure out how to use it, all that sort of stuff. With generative AI, it's a website. It's sort of available. The pipe's are already built. What do you think about the adoption cycle being a extended, you know, beyond 10 years as uh, Joseph
1: suggested. That's a really good point, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I think the view is generally from Joseph and the team at at Goldman is that, uh, you know, the, the big influx and focus that we've had, obviously, throughout this year, 2023, on AI was not necessarily going to be uh, full deep dive over the next one, two, three years. So you know, CEOs would be a little bit concerned on you know compliance perspective, regulatory right. perspective, which I I tend to agree with. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And just anecdotally talking to people and you know friends in the industry, friends at different industries, just you know what are you thinking? What are you you know what's your firm thinking? That seems to be the general the general. Takeaway and, and mood, so I think that's fair. So I think this idea of everything's going to be different in two or three years, I I I, I would I would push back on that idea. So I think that's kind of this five to ten year adoption cycle is you know is somewhat reasonable. And obviously, when you're talking five to ten years out, like anything's possible. I, you know, sure. Who know Who knows how it's going to go? But I think you bring up a good point in terms of kind of uh, you know physical infrastructure versus um, maybe sl- slightly less physical infrastructure I mean obviously there's some f- physical infrastructure going into building a website and having the mechanics there and the architecture there to have it you know ready to go but yeah the process of, of that and there's a learning curve obviously associated with that for anybody right like I I'm, I'm okay with technology but I'm definitely not amazing and if I were to go on something like that and start from scratch there would be you know I, I'm sure I'd you know get somewhere at some point, but there would be a learning curve for me, absolutely. in terms of how to get the most efficiencies and improving that efficiency and the technology is moving at the same time in parallel and all those sorts of things. So I think I think you make a good point in terms of kind of the the physical changes and kind of getting a, a timestamp stamp in terms of the adoption period versus uh, maybe this is slightly less physically, or architecturally intensive, and therefore maybe the adoption process can be somewhat slightly. I mean, I guess the the irony is that the technology kind of breeds on itself, which is really an AI thing anyway, right? The technology allows the allows that transformation and that architecture to be more broadly based and you know, broadly used uh, within a, a relatively you know, uh, quicker period of time, so to speak. So I think that's that's a good point. I mean, only time will tell obviously, but I generally agree with Joseph's view that um, the next one, two-ish years, uh, there's going to be a lot of regulation stuff going on. Sure there should be a lot of regulation stuff here domestically in Canada on how to how to deal with it, whether it's federal or provincial. Uh, every company's got to have a policy on this. I mean, every, every Every company has to have a policy on this, for sure. sure. And in the U.S., I know it's going to move through the the court system. And uh, you know, an intellectual, an intellectual, obviously uh, proprietary stuff. You know, do you want to feed that through a model, uh, an AI model that you don't have control over? uh that uh you know they have the the potential to use that that proprietary data or idea or or what have you that's going to be problematic for a lot of a lot of companies so that's why i think this uh, you know this adoption rate over the next one or two years and going all in i think is probably not going to be the case
0: makes a lot of sense. Uh, something that I'm sure we'll come back to as well, Dustin, this being uh, one of the major themes. And if uh, if Joseph's anywhere close to right on the uh, pickup and GDP growth, obviously something that's going to be with us for some
1: time. So yeah. look forward to revisiting it with you and, and future guests. Yeah, same here. Thanks very much for joining me on the discussion. I thought this was a really, really interesting episode.